Last week, we jumped back into the book of Acts, thinking about this idea of legacy. We talked last week, uh, kind of to get our minds going about the legacy of Tiny T and his hoagie shop. And we talked about the legacy of Alfred Nobel and his opportunity to kind of pre-examine his obituary. This morning, I, we would jumpstart this, this thought again from the perspective of the great Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci, history says, the final words that he spoke on his deathbed were these. I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Perfectionist much? If da Vinci has offended God and humanity because his work wasn't quality enough, we should all go home. Right? Uh, Another thought is, and I just recently heard this, um, at the last press conference that Elvis Presley ever gave before his death. The king, final words at his final press conference, quote, I hope I haven't bored you. Right? This idea of legacy, though, we're we're looking at a legacy that's bigger than just a celebrity or an inventor or an artist. We're looking at this idea of a, a legacy of the movement of ecclesia, the movement of what the body of Christ, the church is throughout all time. We're looking this uh, this lens of a, of a church legacy through the farewell tour of the Apostle Paul with the church at Ephesus. He's saying goodbye to them. And so I invite you to grab your Bible if you would. If you don't have one, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. And then we're going to invite you to join in our tradition to hold up our Bibles and say our creed together. Before we say it, I do want to say this. At Cornerstone Baptist Church in OP, Nigeria, they say this creed every Sunday morning. And so uh, how cool is that for our partnership together? Maybe that'll be a little extra motivation on a cold morning. Let's hold up our Bibles and say this together. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. We're going to be back in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 874. Acts chapter number 20. Quick review, we, we were looking for these principles throughout this farewell message from the Apostle Paul for what are the elements of a culture of a church that are healthy, that are enduring, that stand the test of time and last. The first one we said is a healthy church culture is a team culture. A, a healthy church has a team of leaders. We see in verse 17 from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church to come to him. Uh, We saw, we skipped down to verse number 28. He's given this warning, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you, plural again, overseers. And then this, this charge or this commission to care for is the same idea that's translated in other places to shepherd, but it's given in a plural Context And in a biblical church pattern, it's not about a dictator. It's not about a CEO. It's not about a celebrity. It's about people who have shared ownership and authority. It's that we are all leaders when we belong to the body of Christ. Whether you play a musical instrument, hold open a door, change a diaper, or clean a urinal, we're serving as leaders in the body of Christ. 
And sometimes that leadership position is invisible. It's that you're caring for somebody behind the scenes and nobody ever sees it or tells you good job or, or way to go or pats you on the back that, that a, a healthy church culture is a team. We also looked last week that a healthy church has authentic leaders. They're not living isolated and removed. Verses 18 and 19, Paul said when, uh, when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. The first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with humility, tears, and trials. He's like, you saw my life. We did life together. The mountaintops and the messes, the highs and the lows, the good days and the days we really wish we could forget. We were in it together. The idea of authentic leaders is that we're not playing some fake, phony, put a mask on church game. That is not where Christ is exalted. That's not where Ecclesia lives. We want to know one another. For real, doing life together. The third thing we looked at last week is that a healthy church is faithful to the word. A healthy church is faithful to the word. The next verse, the Apostle Paul says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Man, if, if I thought it was good for you, then we declared it. Teaching you, public from house to house, testifying to Jews and Greeks. And skip down uh, to verse number 24. He says, I don't account my life of any value or precious to myself, only that I'll finish my course, the ministry I've received from Lord Jesus. And what is that? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And behold, I know that none of you among whom I've been gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see me again. And I testify to you this day, I'm innocent. The blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then my favorite verse in this passage is found down in verse number 32. He said, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Healthy church is faithful to the word. Now, let's circle back to verse number 21 and keep working through the text here. We're looking for these principles of what makes for a healthy church. Verse number 21 again says, testifying, this is what he said I did. I testified to Jews and Greeks, and I want you to see what he testified of. Repentance toward, that's a directional word. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Not faith in the church, not faith in the leaders, not faith in me. Faith in Christ and in Christ alone. A healthy church is Jesus-centered. And maybe you'd say, well, of course it is. That doesn't need to be said. And I'd say, man, I think that needs to be said about every other day. The healthy church is actually not about the individuals. And the healthy church is not about the members either. We've created this consumeristic version of church in our day and in our culture where I decide whether or not I'm going to connect with a church about whether or not it has the things I like and the, the programs I like. And the reality is this thing doesn't exist for us. This thing exists for him. We get to be part of it. And in the centering on Jesus, we find what we actually need. And sometimes it's not what we want. Sometimes it doesn't check all the boxes. And we find out, oh, wait, orienting my life away from self and around Jesus is good for me. A healthy church is Jesus-centered. Everything that we intake on a weekly basis is self-centered. And even almost to a healthy degree. I think today, if you are an adult, you should pick what you eat. That's why we became adults. If you were a child, 
Wait till you become an adult. You eat whatever your parents put in front of you. But a day is coming where you can eat as awful as you want. And then you'll start to pay the consequences of that. And you'll think, man, my mom was smarter than me. We get to choose things for ourselves. We pick the music that we prefer. But in this, this mission, this movement that we belong to is way bigger than my, my natural desires and my whims and my wishes. This is all about Jesus. It's not about us. Look again. I told you last week that we would circle back to it. Verse number 19, Paul describes how he lived this open life there. And he says, serving the Lord with all humility and tears and trials. It's just so funny to me that he says, I served with all humility. Like if there was anything I was awesome at, I killed it when it came to being humble. I'm actually awesome. It's worth slowing down with that word because it's a word that's used a lot in the scriptures. The word humility is sometimes actually translated weakness. I serve the Lord with all weakness. Interestingly, it was not just a very common word in the New Testament. It was a very common word in Greek culture. But it was almost always used as an insult. In Greek culture, you didn't call somebody humble to mean, hey, you've got good character. What you were actually saying is, bro, you're soft. Right? I was trying to think of what's an analogy that would make sense to us. For all the men in the room... If somebody you look up to were to be like, dude, you're soft, right? Nothing brings up your, like your instant testosterone boost to the brain. You're like, whatever, right? Maybe snowflake would be a better analogy. It's funny that the word snowflake is so offensive because it kind of means you're acting like snowflake. Anyways, um, th- this is an insult. It means fragile. It means vulnerable. It means lowly and defeated. So the Apostle Paul is not boasting about how good he was at humility. He's talking about the fact that he had nothing to boast in except for the cross of Jesus Christ. He actually talks later about boasting in his weaknesses. Because his strength is perfected in my weakness. He's celebrating. And about 200 times in the New Testament, this idea of humility and weakness is used. Uh, a matter of fact, more by Paul than any other author. And it's funny that he would say, uh, teach about humility so much. Uh, Tom Mercer, I heard him say back in uh, September, Tom Mercer said, if anybody on planet Earth ever had a reason to not be humble, it was Jesus. And number two, the Apostle Paul. Like what he accomplished for the kingdom of God. Like if anybody could be like, y'all need to be humble, but I'm kind of a big deal, right? Like straight anchor man. Like, and nobody talked more about humility than the apostle Paul. He's celebrating the fact that this is not about us. And I love this. Skip Heitzig asked this question. So good. He said, how is it that in the gospel, what is considered an insult outside the gospel is considered a virtue inside the gospel. How does that work? Here's the answer. Because the Christian faith is not about extraordinary men or extraordinary women who have great character and great 
virtue and are worthy to be praised. No, the Christian faith is all about a great savior who saves those who are weak, who saves those who are the most broken, who saves those who are the most vulnerable, who saves those who are the most helpless and hopeless, who saves those who are the most guilty of all sinners. It's all about him. He's a great savior. The reason we come together is not because we're awesome. Y'all check us out. We're legit. No, it's you wouldn't believe what a mess I am. Have you met Jesus? He's amazing. That's the Christian message. It's all about him. A healthy church is Jesus-centered. It's almost like the Apostle Paul is coming to the end of this. He spent a third of his ministry life with this one congregation. He spent very, very little time with most every other place he has visited. He's really grown to know them. And in this legacy, farewell, clarity, what we see from the heart of the Apostle Paul here is that Paul didn't want to leave them with an example to admire, but a savior to adore. Paul didn't want to leave them with an example to admire. He wanted to leave them with a savior to adore. Amen. That's good, man. Like write that down. If you're not a note taker, that's worth remembering tomorrow. My mission on planet earth is not for people to admire me. It's that they might sense something in me that causes them to love Jesus a little bit more and find life and meaning and purpose in that. And I want to say this real quick before we move on. I want to look at verse 28 again, that warning where he's telling them to pay careful attention to yourselves and the flock. I want you to look at the end of that. He says to care for or to shepherd the church of God. Make no mistake, this thing belongs to him everywhere that she exists. This thing called the the church Globally and throughout all of time does not belong to a denomination, does not belong to a certain leader or a certain person, does not belong to the lead pastor. Two weeks ago, Neil and I were in the Dominican and he met a friend of mine, a, a ministry leader there who's, who's Dominican, and he was asking Neil what our connection was. And I said, I've never met him before. Please get him away from me. And... uh they're introducing themselves, and he, Neil said, you know, I, I, I lead a school. And uh, he goes, oh, is the school connected to, is that how you and Doug know each other? Do you work together? And Neil said, yeah, at Doug's church. And instantly, my skin crawled, right? Because of all people, he didn't mean that, right, the way that it came out. But let's make no mistake today. This is not my church, right? Because the rest of that verse says it's his church because he obtained it with his own blood. It doesn't belong to any person, any faction. And some of you that grew up in church, you've seen ugly division where people are fighting about the the, the color of the pew padding and the, the carpet and the, these ugly church divisions where people are claiming their own demands. And here's the deal. This thing doesn't belong to any of us. Like we all need a holy dose of get over yourself. And that's what coming together is supposed to do. Coming together is supposed to be a reminder that we belong to something bigger than us. It's all about him. Healthy church is Jesus centered. Back to verse 32. I told you it's like my favorite verse in this passage. I commend you. I love that language. Now I commend you to God. It's the word of his grace. And I want you to see what he believes happens when you walk with God 
and abide in his word. This is what he believes happens. This is the work of grace. You ready? To build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The work of God and the work of the word in grace is that he is building us up. Those of you who know me well know I'm not very handy. I'm not good at any of that. Whenever Marisa needs something fixed, I just look on Amazon to see if I can prime deliver a replacement. It's just not what I'm good at, right? And my father-in-law is coming in town tomorrow who can fix everything that's ever existed. I'm, I'm awful at it. So when I saw this word in the text, I did what any good theological nerd would do. I went and looked up, what's this word in the Greek? Surely it means something other than build. And what I discovered is, thinking means build. It's a construction word. I got nothing. It's a construction word. It's the idea that the work of God and the word of God is on a lifelong construction project in our souls. That's what sanctification is. Sanctification is the idea of God setting us apart from what we used to be and from what is countercultural. And according to the language of the word, that he's on a lifelong mission to ever conform us to the image of his beloved son. And the less we look like Jesus, the bigger that work project is. Right? We're pulling like seven building permits for this job over here, man. It's bad. It's a mess. And he's in this lifelong process. And what's amazing about this word in the text, build, is it's the same word that's used by Jesus. Jesus asks his closest followers, his closest friends, what's the chatter about me? What's trending about me? What's the word on the streets? Who do people say I am? Some think you're Elijah. Some think you're one of the prophets. He said, yeah, but you've been with me now. Who do you think I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus said, you're right. And on that declaration of my godness and my authority, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The way God builds his church is not through buildings and programs and attendance. He builds his church by building people who bear his Holy Spirit. He's building us up. That is the work. And so a healthy church challenges us. A healthy church confronts us. A healthy church rattles our apathy. A healthy church meets us where we are, but loves us too much to leave us there. Says, hey, what are the next steps? What's the pro copto work of grace in your life today that God's clear in the next little round of debris in the path that leads to life? Let's go. He's at work. He's building us up. Our purpose statement here says this temple exists to guide people to life change in Jesus Christ. The reality is that sentence could be shorter. We could just say we exist to guide people to Jesus because here's the deal. If you're really walking with Jesus, he is going to change your life. We either cooperate with that and enjoy that and roll with that and submit to that or we're resisting it through our own checked out apathy or harboring unconfessed sin in our life. 
I'm telling you, God's building a church today. And it is our calling when we come together to go, don't forget we're not done. Don't forget work is still setting us free. The work of grace is still setting us free. Don't forget the word of God is still changing the way we view ourselves and those around us. Don't forget God's not done. Whether you've been a Christian longer than I've been alive or whether you're brand new to this thing or whether you're not sure yet if you've given your life to Jesus, I'm just telling you the work of grace will never give up on you. And on the authority of scripture, it'll also never be done until you breathe your last breath. And so as long as you're still breathing, he's still building. A healthy church challenges us, meets us where we are, but confronts our apathy and calls us forward. Let's keep reading in the text. Verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. And I, that's, that, that verse has always been true for my heart until Chad walked in wearing that sweatshirt today. And I'm coveting that sweatshirt. That is awesome. Those are the old school cartoons, y'all. Not them newfangled ones that are politically correct. Like, that's good stuff right there. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who are with me. I love J.D. Greer said, here's the translation of that. I gave more than I took. That's really good. I gave more than I took. And then he said this. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it's more blessed to give than receive. A healthy church is generous. A healthy church is generous to those who are weak and most vulnerable. And now if the question is, what do you mean by weak? Do you mean physically weak or spiritually weak or economically weak? And the answer is, Yes, all of the above. A healthy church is not trying to grow our brand. We are trying to serve the most needy among us and around the world. That's what we will leverage our resources for by God's grace. That's what healthy church culture does. We serve those who are in need. A healthy church is generous. The words of Jesus here, it's more blessed to give then receive. The question is, well, what, what verse is that from? Where is that quoting that from? And it, neither in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John do we have red letter words of Jesus saying, it's more blessed to give than receive. We're not sure where Jesus said it. You think, oh, well, is this an error? Did Luke make a mistake? Did his historical fact digging get the fact checker wrong? No, if, if you go to the beginning of the book of Acts and hang a left, The end of the gospel of John, the final words of John's gospel, John the Beloved, said Jesus also did many other things, period. And it's almost like he was going to end there and then went, but they might wonder how many things. Let me explain to them how many other things Jesus did. And so he started another sentence, as it were. If they were all written down... I suppose the whole world cannot contain the books that would be written. That's a lot of books. So Jesus did a lot of things and said a lot of things that weren't written down. We talked about that some during our next steps series. So 
When did Jesus say this? Where did Jesus say this? And to whom did Jesus say this? I don't know, but I believe he said it. And I'll tell you two reasons I believe he said it. Number one is because God's word said he says it. The Holy Spirit has preserved his word saying that Jesus said this. And that's kind of enough for me. Although let me give this endorsement. Number two, it's true. And Jesus tends to be true. It is more blessed to give than receive. Those of you that the Holy Spirit has been building up your generosity, he's been growing you towards a more generous heart, you're nodding going, "Uh uh-huh, this is true, I've experienced it. Literally, it's, it, it is such a joy for God to leverage your resources for somebody who's in need. And it's even more joyful when they don't even know it. They can't even tell you thank you. And you're like, whoo, that's so good. And I've had people tell me, they've criticized me. People are just doing this so they can feel better. Pfft, yeah, next. Jesus literally said, here's the thing, I'm feeling really down. Give some money away to a hurting person. Literally, if you go to a secular therapist today with depression, they will say, do something for someone who can do nothing for you in return. And then if they're honest, that secular therapist will tell you, we don't know why that'll help. We just think it will. And let me tell you why it'll help. Because you bear the image of a holy God who has demonstrated that he himself would not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is more blessed to give than receive. The reason that some of the wealthiest people who've ever lived are miserable is because it is not more blessed to take than to give. See how we just turned that? That guy's brilliant. You ready for that pivot? Put on your seatbelt. Truly, like the reason so many people are like, what's going to be enough for you? Like how many yachts does a dude need? This is ridiculous, right? When, I don't know why I just thought of this. When, uh, the first time I ever visited the Dominican Republic, we go to the, the port and there is the biggest boat I've ever seen in my life. It was gunmetal gray, had two helicopter pads on it. It was ginormous. It was amazing. And I'm like, what is that? They're like, it's some Russian oligarch and the American government's trying to hold it up because we're, you know, arguing with Putin today. And I'm like, that's crazy. Come to find out it's like the f- fifth, fourth, uh, most expensive yacht in the world. He owns another one, too. Like, literally, you could get lost on this boat. Why do you need another one? Here's why. Because no matter how much we acquire, it will never satisfy us. It really is more blessed to give than receive. This is an important place to, to pause here and say, the whole point of missions emphasis is that our hearts would be moved by God. How we hope that moving manifests itself is I believe with all my heart, with all my heart, that there are people in this room who have a supernatural divine call from God that is either on your life or is coming for you. The reality is I've been here 14 years and we've not sent out a missionary in that time. The only one that we did never made it to the field because the Lord decided to bring her home. I just believe God's stirring in somebody's heart. God is going to stir in somebody's heart. I'm begging him to do that. I've been praying for 14 years. God, I, I pray we'd send away our sharpest people. Give them to the nations. I don't know who our sharpest people are. I'm, I'm, I'll form a list later. Um, he would be like, don't do that to me, man. I don't want to live in a hut. <laughs> So we're praying God will speak to your heart about going. 
And then we pray God will speak to your heart about sending. That we'll continue to be a church that is generous for the sake of the nations. The incredible thing about this global missions emphasis focus is there's no administrative fee that we take off the top. Every dollar that you give designated towards global missions goes to the nations and to the support of our ministry partners. We, every, uh, if you're new, at the end of every February, we ask for commitments for the next 12 months. In faith to the promises of God, this is what I believe the Lord has led us to give for the next year, either monthly or weekly. And that is the global missions gift. Not your designated gifts, not if you're given to a specific individual or to a specific missions cause or even missions trips or the fundraisers like we have next week, but to our general missions fund. And that's how we budget for that fiscal year, which runs first Sunday in March through last Sunday in April. And so in the next couple of weeks, you're going to be asked to start praying, God, what do you want to do in my heart? What, what's, what's the generosity you want to manifest through me? It's not part of our tithes. It's above our tithes. This is an offering. I've mentioned this a couple of times in the last few weeks, but we're pretty behind as we're coming to the end of this fiscal year for the, the commitments that were given last February to where we find ourselves on the last Sunday of January, 11 months later. This morning, as we gather in this place, we, uh, as of last Sunday morning, were $24,421.53 short on our annual commitments of giving. And so we're praying not just that God will, will birth some generosity for the next year. We're hoping God's going to move some hearts that will say, I also want to close the gap from this year of some, some, some shortfall. Uh, and the Lord's been gracious and our bills are paid in our general budget. Uh, and many of you have, have given above and beyond and we're grateful for that. We just really need to close this fiscal year strong for the sake of the nations. We're making a push, not for ourselves, not for our buildings, our programs or our salaries. But because we're partnered with people that we believe are making a difference around the world for the sake of the gospel. A healthy church is generous. All right, I want us to circle back to one more verse, and this will be the seventh principle, and it will be where we conclude chapter 20 here. But I want us to go back to kind of the middle of this farewell that Paul is giving to these elders. In verse 22, he says, now I'm going to Jerusalem. Once you see this language here, constrained by the Spirit not knowing what will happen to me there. And we're going to talk in the next few weeks about what's going to happen to him there. And his estimation is correct. If you keep reading, it's a pretty negative experience. But he's telling them farewell. And this, this is the part I want us to hear. He's telling them farewell, not because he's got a, a whim of an idea or he, the grass is greener somewhere else. The Jerusalem grass is greener than the Ephesus grass. No, he's saying goodbye because he's constrained by the Holy Spirit of God. A healthy church is committed to each other. A healthy church is committed. One of the sad things about American church culture is every time a program isn't what we want it to be, or they don't offer this class, or they don't do this thing, or God forbid that person hurt my feelings, we just go find another church under another brand until we realize they're not perfect either. And then we go to another church and Oh, good grief, they're even worse. It's, it's a difficult thing. And I just think the body of Christ could use a little grit that says, I'm committed until the Holy Spirit of God constrains me and tells me this isn't where I'm supposed to be. 
I think that would be a holy thing. And I'm here to tell you, as your pastor, I am not sniffing after any other greener grass. I'm committed to you until the Holy Spirit of God tells me my season is done here. I just think that's a healthy thing for us to all commit to each other, not just for me to say from the platform. Like, what if we really said, I won't leave until the Holy Spirit of God tells me to do? Let's do life. Let's jump in. Let's serve each other. The reality is, if we could navigate through those disappointing times, I think we'd find out our relationships are stronger on the other side. We've weakened our ability to persevere because we just bounced to another place. We're doing the same thing in marriage. We're doing the same thing with friendships. Come on, church. Let's say I'm not moving until the Holy Spirit tells me to. You don't have to like everything that we're doing. I don't like everything we're doing. And I'm responsible for a half of it. Like, we're doing the best we can with the resources we have to be as obedient as we know how to be. Let's just be committed to each other for the long haul. We're in it. The ups and downs, the wins and the losses, the celebrations and the griefs. Temple exists to guide people to life change in Jesus. Not programs, not facilities, not budgets, not legends and legacies. We're in the people business. And just like Walt and Karen talked about in their ministry, it's all about the story. That's true among us too. That's universally true all around the world. It's not about building a machine. It's stories of life change. In the my unpaid side job of counseling pastors since my brother's suicide, I, I talk to pastors a lot who, who are in a really dark place because they're leading a ministry through, through changes that they need to change to reach their community. They're changing their style of music or they're changing... Uh, how stuffy everybody dresses because they're trying to meet, reach the community they're in. They're, they're changing sometimes locations. We've been through that as a church. And sometimes they're going through name changes. And sometimes they're just trying to do a remodel. And people are like, my grandfather bought this pew. By God, it's crazy. The amount of conflict. And these guys are so beat down. They're literally like, I don't even think I can do this anymore. They're so beat up. Because the people of God are so busy holding on to their memories instead of holding on to their mission. The mission is life change. People experiencing Jesus and being different because of it. i got to be honest with you. There's nothing I won't change to reach the next person in this community for Jesus. You can throw me out if you want to. I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit, if he leads us to change something, what are we holding on to, man? Let's just hold on to the mission. Let's go. I hope God doesn't want us to relocate. It'd be a giant pain in the rear end to relocate this church school and daycare. So if he does that, I hope that will be after he constrains me by the spirit to go and do something else. (laughs) I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. That was actually totally, totally. I meant out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The legacy of this ministry is not our name or our location or our facilities or our school or our daycare or our programs. It is stories of men and women and children who've encountered the presence of Jesus and their life is different because of it. That's the legacy. This church in Ephesus today is an archaeological dig. I'm told it's pretty magnificent. I've never been. But it's, it's dead. 
And we have a lot of information about the church at Ephesus, more than most churches in the New Testament, because not just the book of Ephesians was written to them. First Timothy and Second Timothy was in the context of the church at Ephesus. And then we have this little paragraph a little farther down the road in the book of Revelation. This little message, Skippites had called it a postcard. This little message from Jesus to this church in Ephesus only 40 years A little less than 40 years after this farewell. Only four decades. What we could call a half a generation. And the message to Ephesus is, you used to do a lot of things right. But you have left your first love. It is possible in the middle of a generation for us to lose sight of what matters. May we guard that the first love is Jesus himself and nothing else comes second. Healthy church is committed, committed to stories of life change. And so here's the encouragement this morning. Number one, if you've never given your life to Jesus, never been a better day than today for you to give your life to Jesus. Number two, if you've never given your life to his church, There's never been a better day than today to say, I'm going to lock in. Maybe this morning you need to take a step of faith and actually join temple. Or maybe for you it's a a determination. I'm going to actually step outside my comfort zone and invite somebody to go to lunch today. I'm not going to join the program. I want to join some people. And for all of us today, I'd ask, could we examine what the Lord desires of us? To join his mission around the world for the glory of God.